Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey, I'm Peter and I'm here with Jerry. Hi, everybody. And we are here with a very special episode this time. It's our Origins Recap. So, if you're here to hear about a bunch of new games, then you've come to the right spot. Now, I will say... We are the one-stop co-op shop, and that's never going to change, but we did play some competitive games, and we're going to recap those as well. So if you just want to hear about a bunch of games, today is the episode for you. That's right. So Jerry, how you doing, man? I'm living the dream. How are you? Good. This is the first convention I've come back from, and my wife Linda says to me, she goes, you have your voice. I was like, I know. This is like the first con I've come back to, and I was able to talk after I've come back. I don't know if it's the mask wearing. I don't know if it's the subdued nature of cons this year, but uh, yeah, I I was pretty happy to have a voice when I came back. Yeah, I didn't have any problems with my voice, but we didn't spend much time having to talk loudly over the crowds because it was a little bit more subdued, like you said. Yeah, but we'll get into all that. But before we get too far into the episode, let's thank our Patreon supporters. So this week, I'm going to thank Matthias Painshare, a co-op fan, Nate Emmons, a co-op MVP, and Jason Montgomery, a co-op fan. So Matthias, Nate, and Jason, thank you so much for your support. And thanks for everybody who supports us by watching our one of our two YouTube channels and listening to the podcast. Yeah, thank you all. All right, Jerry, you ready for some Origins talk, man? It's been like a couple weeks since then. Or has it only been a week? I don't it's know. It's only been a week, dude. <laughs> has it really? It feels like it's been longer. I guess, yeah, I guess it was only a week ago. Yeah, it's been a week. Ah, uh, time flies when you're not at a convention. <laughs> <laughs> so we got in on Wednesday. We drove up together. This is your first time going to Origins. So I guess at the end, we'll get your opinions on how it compares to other conventions. But what were your thoughts going in? What were you expecting? My big question is how they were going to handle what is typically a fairly large convention with the whole pandemic situation and whether it was going to be anything like a normal convention. That was mainly what I was wondering. Then we arrived, what, Wednesday afternoon? Yep, we got in Wednesday afternoon, fully expecting to go to the con on Thursday at 10 a.m., I think we thought is when it opened. We were so excited to go get our badges, and that wasn't quite ready on Wednesday afternoon. So we headed back to the room and we played some Pandemic Legacy. Yep. We start off trying to refamiliarize ourselves with Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, which we had played, I think, through April or so, April or May. June or July, I thought. Oh, really? That far? Yeah. I think in July is when we had last played it. So uh, we started playing the next month and got a bunch of rules wrong. We had ended up having to restart just because we forgot all the uh, Pandemic Legacy Season Zero specific rules. So we restarted, and then we uh, got back in the swing of things and played our first game of the convention outside of the bar on two. Yeah, so they had tables set up out there. Well, they didn't have tables set up out there. They were like part of the convention center tables. They were like these big, tall tables. We found one outside of the big bar on two and played Pandemic Legacy. We felt it was better to do it out in at least a public space, a little bit social. But uh, yeah, that was interesting because like a lot of these legacy games, if you put them down for too long... It really is hard to get back into. And we're halfway done the month and you're like, we got to start over. I'm like, this can be salvaged. You're like, no, no, no." we did it completely wrong. (laughs) It wasn't even close. Yeah. So we had to start all over. And and that's the one thing I'll say about Pandemic Legacy and all the Pandemic Legacies and every other Legacy game I played as well. Because the rules evolve as you go along, getting back in is really hard. But then with that being said, we continued 
the next day, and we'll get into that in a minute, and it's really easy once you're into the rules and once you've got them in your brain. And look, they do a great job of laying out the rule books where you put the stickers in and then you get explained every rule that you should know to play the game. I think they do a brilliant job with all that, but it really is the kind of game it's real hard to put down and pick back up again. And so if you can, and if you're going to get into one of these games, I almost feel like you have to binge it, like play it over the course of a weekend, two weekends, three weekends, but like back to back to back weeks. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Like season zero, especially it takes a normal pandemic formula, but it adds a lot of different rules and layers on top of it. The basic pandemic rules are something that I'm not sure I'd ever forget. But the individual specialized things for Pandemic Legacy Season Zero had just left my mind completely. And having to learn it from the rulebook is more difficult than when you first open the package that has the new rules. When you first open the package and read the new rules, it kind of makes a lot more sense than if you try to come back to it and learn it from reading the rulebook. Well, and you have this situation where it's like, oh, I know how to play this. And so you skim the rules. You don't actually read them the second time through. And you just go to the section you think you need to go to to learn the parts. Like, oh, yeah, I know how to do that again. And the thing with season zero above and beyond season two is that the games are so similar to base pandemic that you think you know how to play it and you think you should. But there are these minor, minor differences where season two was like a completely different game. Season zero is very close. But those minor differences make a huge difference in the game. I think even when we did it with Pandemic Legacy Season 1, we put that game down for about a year. And that takes a while. And that's why when we started playing that one, we did the same thing. We're like, forget it. Now we know the rules again. We're just binging it. We played it all the way through the next convention we went to. Yeah, and the other thing is we were playing with two players instead of the three players we had been playing with up until that point. And I mean, it doesn't change any of the real rules, but it does change you know, the end game. And it did change how we were used to completing the earlier missions because we had Mike's players power to uh, utilize during the initial months. And we didn't have that for what we were playing at Origins. So it was a little bit more trying to get used to figuring out the way to handle all the the outbreaks and, and whatnot in a different way. Sure. And so for those of you who guessed Mike wouldn't complete the campaign with us, go ahead and drink now. Uh, finish <laughs> your drink because yep. uh, you are definitely com- correct on that one. You were correct. Yep. Mike bailed after about June, July. So the next day we went down super excited. Jerry got up 7 a.m. Oh, I got up 6 a.m. Oh, 6 a.m. Went down, (laughs) got our badges for us. Very excited to go in. We're like, all right, the dealer hall opens at 10. We headed over to the dealer hall and they didn't open up at all, actually, on Thursday. (laughs) Like zero dealer hall. So I was like, interesting. My understanding is uh, normal origins Thursday is really the first day. And when I was looking through the website, I don't know if I was looking at old information or they just hadn't updated it, but it said, if you have a media badge, which Peter and I did, you get in at 9 a.m. on Thursday. So, you know, I woke up extra early to get down there, get all the badges, got all that straightened up. And then, uh, yeah, then they told us, yeah, no dealer hall today. There wasn't really anything going on. Well, not terribly much going on on Thursday. Well, the only thing open was the boardroom, but then they didn't have the game library there. And we didn't, at that point, know anybody that was immediately there or have a group to go to. So we ended up going back to our room and playing four more games of Pandemic Legacy. Yep. It was a little weird because we didn't really have anybody to meet up with at that point on Thursday. And like Peter said, the boardroom was really the main thing that was open for the convention. I mean, there were events, like there were RPGs going on uh, and things like that, but... 
basically anything that required a ticket was not something that Peter and I did. By the time I'd even looked at what events you could register for and, and buy the tickets to, they had all sold out already. So we didn't really do any ticketed events. So we ended up going back to the room and playing, a, like Peter said, three games of Season Zero, just to stay in the swing of things. And that was good, and that was fun. And uh, that is, I think, all we ended up playing Thursday, wasn't it? No. You reintroduced me to Marvel Champions. Oh, um, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we played uh, We played Crossbones. I was Captain America, and you were, I can't remember who you were. Venom. Oh, that's right. You were Venom. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, it's definitely a better experience as a two-player game than at higher player counts, in my opinion. I've never played it solo because I'm not too much of a solo gamer, but... Yeah, it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Now, hold on a second. I'm going to call you on this because you had seemed to have zero interest in playing it anymore after that. And look, you know, everybody out there knows this is like my favorite game at this point. You seem to have zero interest in playing any more games. There were times where we had time to play and we never did. And now you're telling me you had fun. What's going on? No, it was a fun game, but I didn't go to Origins to play Marvel Champions in a hotel room with you. Well, sure. I could have played Marvel Champions at, at home. Well, yes, but we had nothing else to do at that point. Now, we did reach out to our friend Don, who was on the Secret Cabal podcast. And did we meet up with him that night or not till the next day? No, we did. We did that night. But first, we went to the convention hall and the boardroom had gotten in their game library. That's right. And we ended up playing the new crew, Mission Deep Sea. Yes. So we sat down. We started pulling it out. And of course, it doesn't play two players. I think it's three to five. And so thankfully, while Jerry was away looking at other games, I started sitting down reading the rules. I was like, well, I'm not going to play. We'll just read the rules, see what's different. And then somebody kind of sat down at our table with us. And he's like, oh, my friend's coming over. You mind if we sit here? Well, we're about to play this if you want to join us. And so we kind of met two random people just at a happenstance there. And it worked out. We played probably five or six games of the crew they'd never played before. So we started at mission one and played our way up. And I don't know. What'd you think? I liked it. It added some new twists from the regular crew. I mean, I still like the regular crew. It's one of those games I have at work that we play at lunchtime. But uh, yeah, it added some new twists. I like how the missions are a little bit more varied. Yeah, and we'll get into a deeper dive of the crew when we do a five and five. I'm sure we'll all do that with Mike and Jerry as well. And we did play more of it. So Jerry, I guess you liked it so much you ended up buying it and bringing it back with you or not bringing it back with you they didn't have it there but you ended up buying it when you got back here you enjoyed it so much and we played it with mike this past weekend yes and it was fun again yeah so the way it's a little different from the regular crew so if you've played the regular crew and i'm not going to get into too much details but basically you are flipping over goal cards that have one of the cards in the deck on it and whoever takes that goal card has to win a trick with that card in it the way the new ones work is on the back of each goal card It has a difficulty rating, and it's different based on the player count. Three, four, or five players, they may have a different difficulty rating, or it might be the same, but they might be like, get more pink cards than green cards in tricks you take, or never take any of the nines, or something like that, or win a seven with a wild card, something like that. So very different goals than you would have in the original crew game. And so you're going to draw a number of points up to what mission you're on, and then they may have quirky stuff happen, kind of like in the regular crew as well, where they change the rules even above and beyond that. So for me, this was kind of a step up. I don't know. For me, I still say if you're going to get one of them, I would get the crew originally, unless I guess you've got a a group of just trick takers who have been playing forever. The new one's kind of good for that. 
Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. It's like if, if your group is familiar with trick-taking games, you can probably just start right off with Mission Deep Sea. But if you're playing with some gamers that haven't played a lot of trick-taking games, you are best starting with uh, the regular crew, just because it's a little more, more straightforward. It's definitely a step up, but I don't think too much of a step up. You know, some games for me, I don't want them to be any more complex. Like the Mind, they had like the Mind Extreme Edition or whatever. I didn't need that, right? That's not what the Mind is for me. I don't want that kind of a challenge. Some people did, great. But for me, the crew took it to a certain point. And I think the crew, Mission Deep Sea, did take it to a level that I actually did want to go to, which made me happy. The only complaint I have about the game, and we didn't experience this when we played with Mike, but maybe it's just a lower level issue, is if you draw a card that's above your mission number, so if the you know your mission number one, you're supposed to have one difficulty of cards, and you have to keep flipping through this gold deck till you get a level one mission, which doesn't seem that bad, but like if you have a level five mission and you draw a two and a two to begin with, now you're at four points, you need one more. Finding that one can sometimes take a little bit of time. It's not the worst thing in the world, but I, I remember at the convention, I seemed to go through 10 or 15 cards and still couldn't find a level one mission until I finally did. So, I mean, that annoyed me a little bit more than anything that would have happened in the, the base crew. But I mean, I think that's a small price to pay. Well, and sometimes you get some incompatible goals. Yep. That they just can't play with each other. Like, you know, one is, you know, take all the pink cards or take none of the pink cards. You can't both have that on the same person kind of thing. And some of the missions tell you you have to have all the cards on one person or whatever. So, right, right. And then it's easy enough, though, to put shuffle that back in one of those back in or however you want to do it. Yeah. Then on the way before we played Mission Deep Sea, we got pulled aside to play test a prototype from somebody. I don't have his name with me, but the game was called Expedition to Xanthalar. And that should be coming to Kickstarter soon. It was a game with multiple decks of cards that, based on the phase, you could either buy cards from one deck or acquire cards from another deck. And some of the cards interacted with other players. Uh, It was an interesting little game. I think there might be a little bit more development work to be done. But overall, it was decent. And I won. So actually, it was kind of a great game. (laughs) I recommend everybody pledge it. Yes, yes. I was right there at the end. I was about to win. And we hadn't seen really any take that cards, or at least I hadn't to that point in the game. And then, of course, the designer of the game pulls out the first take that card, stops me from winning. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know those were in there. They're like, yeah, they're in this deck. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Um, Good to know. <laughs> right? Yeah, because like, I would planned all around this like great finish. Like I'm like, all right. And it was a quick game. I mean, to be fair, It's not my kind of game. I'm not a huge fan of Take That Games, and that's certainly what this was. But we got to the very end, and it was, again, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. It wasn't a long game, so I don't mind Take That as much in shorter games. But we got to the end. I felt like I put together this awesome strategy, and then he's like, oh, no, you don't win at all. And I'm like, oh, alrighty then. You kind of got what we call getting munchkined at the end. Like, if you've ever played munchkin at the end of the game... Basically, everybody just stops everybody else from making that winning play at the end until nobody has any cards to stop someone and then that person wins. So I basically won because Peter got stopped first and then there was nothing left to to stop me. And to be fair, I don't know that there are as many cards as a game like Munchkin would have. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, maybe there were and we just didn't draw from that one deck because we didn't know what was in there. But it seemed like a lot of those reaction cards were not stop other player type cards. They were like, if a player plays a card, 
you can pick it up into your own hand. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Or if a player plays a card, repeat its effect or get as many victory points as they did or whatever else. So it was a nice quick game. Again, the take that didn't bother me that much. I just kind of wish I knew it was there because then I certainly wouldn't have been the first to race (laughs) for the finish line. But yeah, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, the main difference is in Munchkin, that last round where everybody's stopping each other can last a half hour or more. This, it lasted all of 30 seconds for Pete to lose and me to win. Yes. <laughs> Alrighty, so was that it for Thursday night? See, this not. is why I take Jerry with me places, because I don't remember <laughs> this kind of stuff. Like, I, my pictures did not start until Friday when we no. went in the dealer hall, finally. <laughs> well, it was around that time that Don got back to us and said, hey, if you want to stop by the hotel that they're staying at, Justin Jacobson from uh, Restoration Games had his production copy of uh, Return to Dark Tower. That's right. So Don, again, as I said earlier, if you don't remember, is Don from Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast. Uh, Yeah, all those guys were hanging out. And so we went and hung out with them and played Return to Dark Tower. Yeah, so we got uh, taught Return to Dark Tower by Justin Jacobson himself. Yeah, we played with, it was myself and Peter and Justin Jacobson and somebody who had done some playtesting on the app for him named Ronnie. And she played with us as well. Yeah, the tower was operational, working. It was Bluetooth connected to, I think he had like an iPad mini or some Android tablet about the size of an iPad mini that we were using. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad I uh, had pledged the Kickstarter after playing that because uh, it was definitely an enjoyable game. I especially really like the combat and how you face down the missions or the enemy monsters that are running around the board and there's quests you have to do. And then the, the final boss, uh, I really like the interaction and the quote unquote combat system that the game has. Yeah, I described it as a fun romp and people made fun of me for that. But I think that's exactly what it was. I wouldn't describe it as some heavy strategy game. I wouldn't say you're making these brain burning decisions. You're doing a move action. You do two other actions. I think one of them is to basically interact with the space. The other one is to or do you only have one other action? No, you have two. Oh, yeah, because you could do like a shop action at one of the spots, and then you could also like interact and fight or remove cubes or whatever else from Or do a quest, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's beautiful. I would say it's well-produced. I would also say it's overproduced. You don't need that much for what the gameplay was. But at the same time, I had fun playing it, and I like the overproduction, and I like the cool little minis and stuff like that. Don't go into this thinking it's more than it is. Yeah, there's certainly no deep strategy there, at least not that I saw. Now, we are playing the easiest level, so be that as it may. But it was filled with interesting decisions, but they were all tactical in nature. We weren't doing any sort of grand strategy. And it has a strong push-your-luck element to it as well in the combat and the quests, which I, I thought was pretty cool. And there was definitely collaboration among the players. We were discussing what we could do as a group so that we could maintain the board state while getting the quests and the items and the treasures that we needed to advance our characters enough to take on the boss. And there was enough difference between the characters that it made sense for certain characters to do certain things, but at the same time, you didn't have to do certain things. And it was it made sense for certain characters to get certain items, but you didn't have to get certain items. So I think they did a good job in balancing strategic choices along with just fun gameplay. Again, it's not going to be the most thinky game of the year. It's not going to probably be my game of the year, but I had a lot of fun playing it. And that production certainly helped that tower in the middle with all the electronic stuff with the app. I didn't think the app was too over integrated in the game. I certainly wish we had a giant screen TV like we had when we played Descent, where we could have 
projected it up on the TV so everybody could have seen what was going on. I think that would have increased my enjoyment of the game, but I had fun with it anyway. So definitely a fun one for me with with all those caveats being said. Yeah, and it's definitely a board game with app integration and the app is required, but it's definitely a board game with app integration. It's not a video game that just has a board. And I like that each of the characters had a impactful power that was specific to them. It was certainly one that I was using every turn. I think most of the powers everybody was using every turn. Yep. Your character got more and more unique as you got additional items that might make you good at killing wolves, for example, whereas I might be good at killing the shadow things that were running around the board. And there was ways to upgrade your character as well. And I know I only upgraded my character once, but your character certainly would have felt different depending on how you upgraded. So I I think there are more gameplays in there. Uh, I'm curious to see what else it does and how much lasting power it has with different missions and things like that, or if it feels samey after a while. Yeah, but there seem to be a good variety of end bosses. And then whoever you don't pick as an end boss can also then become an ally quest, because the guy we picked could have been head enemy, but he ended up being somebody that we had to convert to our side. So it was fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. All right. So since I clearly forgot about four games we played that night, (laughs) was there anything else we played that night, or was that it? There was nothing else we played Thursday night. All right. So we went to bed early so we could get up early and get in the dealer hall the next day. And did we succeed? We did. We did. That's right. All right. So we got to go through. And I'm just going to talk about some games I saw there. Didn't get to play any of these right away. But these are ones I saw. And then we'll talk about the stuff that we played later. But I saw the new production of Castle Panic, which is a game I played quite a bit. And I think we reviewed. And if not, it's a kid game and it's fine and it's too long for what it is. But the new production's beautiful. <laughs> did you get to see that one? I did. I saw I saw the production and uh, yeah, it was very nice looking. I just don't really have a whole lot of interest in the game. And I just can't imagine paying 100 bucks for that game. There, there's not $100 of gameplay in there. No, my kids liked it when they were younger. I would say if they had taken out like half the enemies and figured out how to make it work that way, it would be way better. But I would say a fun romp, but I, I, I'm going to say in this one case, it's more of a romp. I don't know how much fun I had after a while. Like <laughs> It's just a romp. <laughs> it's just a romp on that one. But again, the new stuff is beautiful. And if you want to see pictures, we have all these pictures on our Discord. So please join our Discord. The link is in the show notes. If you look under Origins, I think I called it Origins 2021 or something like that. There's a, a thread in there that you can find it. It's under the general category. But then I saw Ham Helsing Vampire Hunter, which is coming to Kickstarter in 2022. It's uh, based on a graphic novel. You know anything about this one? I know nothing about this one. Yeah, they were telling me a little about... They, they told me more about the comic than they did about the gameplay itself. And that might be because it's early in development. They don't know. But basically, it's a pig who is like a vampire hunter. And he, there's another pig who comes along with them. And their friend, who is a werewolf, who is also helping them out. So I don't know anything about the graphic novel, but it looks pretty funny and pretty fun. Fireside Games, I think, tends to put out lighter games. They are also the one that did Castle Panic. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that one as uh, more information comes out. What would you give it as a like a romp potential score? I mean, it looks very rompy. Okay. (laughs) I mean, if if you're going to romp, you're going to romp with the room or the pig or or the pig romper room or what? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, also, they let us know that they're going to be putting Hot Shots back out again as well. And that one I have not played yet. I think that one's also going to be coming to Kickstarter. And they mentioned an expansion as well. So no promises there, but pretty excited to hear more about Hot Shots. I've never actually played that one. 
I should at some point. What What is it? I just remember Hot Shots being the golf game on the PlayStation. No, definitely not the golf game. But yes, I have played a lot of that Hot Shots, and that one's great. But this is a wildfire fighting game. It's a cooperative wildfire fighting game. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that one. Again, I haven't played it, so I don't have a whole lot to say, but there is supposed to be an expansion coming out soon. The next game I saw was called The Spill, and Mike did a preview video of it, and it's another game where you're dropping things in a tower. This time it's dice, and they spill into different areas, and you're oiling up different animals and wildlife, so it's it's about- (laughs) You're oiling up the animals? You're oiling them up, baby. (laughs) I think you're cleaning them off. Well, no, you are not doing that. The dice are doing that to them, and then you have to clean them off and, and rescue them and things like that. Now, it looked pretty neat. Obviously, it was a very prototype version of the dice tower thing that they had, but it looked pretty neat to me. Mike described it as very pandemic-like, but he wasn't as thrilled with it. I don't know. I I wanted to play it, but we never got around to it. Did you see that one? You know, with the caveat that Mike is not a pandemic lover, so. Correct. Yeah, I saw it. It looked kind of cool. It definitely had some table presence. Absolutely. And this is the second game where stuff kind of falls out of a tower in a random place and you do things based on that. I was like, wow, this is like a trend coming up, I guess. And that was the spill from Smirk and Dagger? Yes, or Smirk and Laughter. They have two imprints, Smirk and Dagger and Smirk and Laughter, I guess. Yeah, Smirk and Dagger is their backstabby, kill your friends kind of an imprint. And then Smirk and Laughter is their anything else. And they also just recently did a Night Cage. Yes. Which seemed to be pretty popular at the convention. Oh, my kids love that game. Allison still talks about it. She says it's her favorite game. I I thought it was fine. (laughs) I did not. (laughs) I was not as enamored, but my daughter loved it and Mike seemed to like it as well. But I think he also played it with his kids. Yeah. Well, I like the art and I think the style really evokes the theme, but the gameplay was okay. It was fine. Yes, it was fine. I wouldn't call it a romp. (laughs) It was, yeah, it didn't have enough romps for me. (laughs) So then we got to uh, the Restoration Games booth where we saw Dark Tower laid out and I got some pictures of it because I I had not taken a picture before today. So that's why my memory before this day was almost nothing, but took some pictures and just beautiful. I mean, I'm looking at the pictures right now. Gosh, the stuff that they did and everything's washed. All the miniatures, they're not painted, but they're washed and it just looks really good. The regular board looks good. We played on the like cloth play mat the day before. And that one really looks good. But that wasn't the most exciting thing I saw at Restoration Games booth. You know what I'm going to (laughs) say. I know what you're going to say, but I I saw a couple new sets of uh, Unmatched that they're uh, going to be producing soon. They had a box on display for the Defenders. So apparently that wasn't ready to show yet. I I guess they're still going through approvals and whatnot. I know it's done because Don said he had played it the day before, but we didn't get to see it. And then they were demoing the new Unmatched Core Set Volume 2, which had some interesting characters in it that I can't quite remember. But I think Bloody Mary was one of them, and I think the Monkey King was one of them. So I'm, I'm a big Unmatched fan, so I was interested in what they had to show there. But that's not what Peter was drawn to. No, for me, it was one of my favorite games from childhood, at least in memory, right? A lot of these games are games you remember fondly, but maybe they weren't the best games. But that was Thunder Road. Oh, I was so excited to see Thunder Road there. (laughs) I mean, and it was terrible quality, right? I mean, it was nothing like what I imagine the game is going to look like. But just seeing it there, seeing that they had the helicopter still in it, seeing that they had the three different cars. 
just everything brought back all these memories of that game. And what I will tell you is we didn't play it that day, but we got to play it later and we'll get back to it later. I don't know. I was very excited. We'll talk about why I was excited and what was cool about the gameplay. They also showed me what the sculpts are going to look like. Justin showed us that and they look really nice. I mean, this is going to be another high end production for them, but we'll talk about gameplay later. Did you play that one with me? Uh, I did not. I watched you play, though, and you were having fun. That was for sure. You were you were romping. I, I would, that had all the romps, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that one later. So the next thing we saw was role player adventures. And I don't think they had any for sale there. If they did, it was a very limited. Oh, no, no, no. That one's not out yet. No, they didn't have any. Yeah, that one's on Kickstarter now. You're going to cause all kinds of posts on the Kickstarter. It's like, I heard you guys had copies at Origins. No, they didn't have any copies of Role Player Adventures. <laughs> That's right. They just had the box there and they were talking about it. And I was like learning about it as if it was a new game that I had never heard of before. <laughs> if you guys watch our stream channel, you know that we've already played this one. <laughs> so uh, I was listening to it. And I was like, yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back for a demo. Like I want to learn all about it. And then I realized that I already played that one. So Jerry, for those that don't know, you want to tell a little bit about Role Player Adventures, at least what you can remember from... Uh, our one playthrough, and if they want to see it, they can always go to One Stop Co-op Shop stream to uh, see a full playthrough. It was a narrative adventure game where it had elements of uh, choose your own adventure with your characters using their stats to pass various tests to have things happen in the adventure with some map movement and then some combats. But I had a, I had a lot of fun with it. I remember it being uh, very entertaining, and it looked like it had some replayability because some of those choices you make will send you on a completely different path for the adventure, so you could easily go back and try it from the other path and see what's different. But Mike had said he'd played multiple times, and he confirmed that it was quite different, depending on which path you picked. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one coming out. I do remember having a good time with it. I remember it wasn't exactly my kind of game. It was definitely more you and Mike's kind of game. A lot of reading, a lot of choose-your-own-adventure type stuff, not a lot of like tactical decisions, things like that. But you guys romped through it. Yeah, I mean, there were tactical decisions in, in the combat. But, you know, the choose your own adventure thing is something both Mike and I enjoy. And there's a strong element of that in the narrative campaign that you go through. That was role player adventures from Thunderworks Games. Oh, look at you. Look at you. You're professional, Jerry. I, I have my notes, man. I have my notes. All right. And then you pulled me to the Arcane Wonders booth to show me Aquatica. Because apparently it was described very similar to a game that you and I both like, which is Concordia. And it has a solo mode. So I was super excited to try it. And then we never did, Jerry. What happened? What happened to Aquatica? Well, they didn't have a demo set up on Friday when we were there. They were demoing a couple other games. I think they were demoing Furnace and Picture Perfect. It's kind of deduction. There's various people at a party and you are trying to set them up. There are 3D standees that you are setting up around a table to try to get the perfect picture. So each one of them has something they like and they dislike. So one person might want not want to have their face in the picture. Another person might want to be close to the wine, for example. And you have to try to set up the best picture with imperfect information. So you don't know everything that each character desires. It looked entertaining, but I did not demo that one. It definitely had a good 3D presence, that's for sure. And yes. so I'm sure that's why. And then Furnace was like, a less expensive game. And we'll get into that one a little bit because we did play that. 
Yes. So I, I think that's why they chose to show those two and not Aquatica. But the thing that stood out to me about Aquatica was the player boards. They were dual layered, but in a way, I, or maybe even triple layered, because there had to be a middle layer there. Because what you did is you kind of slid your cards between two layers of punch board. And so there was kind of like a third layer, I guess, where something was separating those two layers of punch board. So it was kind of neat how you like slid your card further and further up as you did certain actions or whatever else. I don't know because I never played it, but that part seemed really cool to me. And I'm definitely looking forward to try that one at PAX this year. So that was Aquatica, which does have a solo mode. The brief explanation I got is you're going on these dives, essentially. And as you get further down, you're moving and accomplishing parts of the card. You will move that part of the card underneath your board. So you you see what the next quest, I guess, or the next part of that card is. But it was like Concordia because you have a hand of cards that you are choosing an action from. And then there is an action that you take eventually to sweep all your cards back up into your hand. That's very similar to Concordia where there's one card that causes you to get all the cards that you've already played back. But it also seemed to be mixed a little bit with Arnak where you're going out on these expeditions and the expeditions are cards. The thing that struck me about the game is the, like Peter said, the components are really, really nice. There's these chunky plastic manta rays that are in the game that have symbols on them that you use to track different things. And uh, like you said, the dual layer boards are, are very nice. The only thing I found a little bit disappointing was the solo mode is a beat a score kind of thing. So you play the game as normal. And what advances the timer of the game is whenever you take the action to draw the cards back into your hand. And you do that so many times. And then at the end of that, however many times it is, four or five, whatever, you just compare your score to a a chart that says, you know, if you scored between 30 and 50 points, you did a great job. If you scored between 30 and 20, you're okay. If you blow 20, buy a different game kind of thing. So the solo mode might have been a little disappointing, but it really was a beautiful game. And the gameplay, if it was anything like Uncordia, I'd like to try it at PAX as well. Yeah, no, we'll definitely get to that. So we have one more game to tell you about that we know nothing about, and that's Masters of the Night. So, Jerry, you knew a little bit about this, but you get to be vampires going around killing vampire hunters. That sounds kind of cool to me. Yeah. uh, So Masters of the Night is a cooperative game put out by Ares Games. It was a Kickstarter. It's now out. And you are like a family of vampires and you're combating this cult that's trying to expose the vampires. So there's a day phase and a night phase. And during the day phase, bad things happen. Cultists come out on the board. Things change on the board. And then on the night phase, your vampires leave their home base, I guess, and go to the various locations on the board. They might combat cultists or try to complete a ritual until they've defeated the cultists and completed their final ritual that allows them to regain their former glory. So uh, it looks very nice, very well produced. The board itself is a bunch of rectangular cardboard that you can arrange in different configurations. The enemies are, are minis. The vampires are minis. I mean, the version we saw was, I think, the Kickstarter Deluxe. Had metal coins, things like that. It's very well produced. I didn't get a, to actually play the game, but it looked like it had some interesting elements in it. Yeah, no, that one's definitely one that I wouldn't mind checking out also when we go to PAX, but we never got a demo because they weren't really running demos there. They were just kind of telling you about it. I don't know that there was anybody there that knew the game well enough to teach it. So the last game we're going to tease right now that we saw, but we're going to tell you more about later because we actually didn't play it at Origins, but we played it later, is The Loop. And this is another game where you're dropping stuff into a tower and it's coming out on the board. So there were three there. We had already played Dark Tower and then we saw the spill and now the loop. So I don't know. I guess if you have the in front of your name, you get to drop stuff in the tower and it comes out in different weird ways. Yeah, towers are in, man. Towers are in. 
It could be skulls. It could be cubes. It could be dice. Doesn't matter. So the loop is by Pandasaurus. It's got very cutesy art, I would say. Very colorful, vibrant, much smaller tower than any others. And it just kind of spills cubes in one of three different directions. There are seven different eras in the game, and it's going to push them out in one of three different ways based on which way it's facing. So big, chunky, wooden meeples that represent your characters. There's lots of cubes, lots of tokens, lots of cards. So, but we'll get into gameplay a little bit later, kind of at the end of the episode. But yeah, that one looked neat. And so I'll give a little bit of a a jump forward. We went back the next morning just to kind of try to get a demo of it. And they had one copy left. So they weren't even demoing it anymore at that point. So definitely one of the hot games at the show. And I think that uh, pretty much covers all the cooperative games, right? Yep. Yep. That was the one. I mean, we obviously saw other games, but we're not going to talk about, you know, stuff that wasn't cooperative there. They had some solo stuff too. Yeah. Now there was a co-op game that Peter and I both missed. It's by Weird Miniatures. We weren't really expecting for them to have co-op games. So we just totally missed this one, but it's called Vagrant Song. It's sort of like their fantasy world, similar to Malifaux kind of thing. And uh, you are the equivalent of hobos jumping on a train and then you have to escape the train when things go horribly wrong. But it doesn't have miniatures. It has clear acrylic standees with art on both sides. They do look very nice and the game overall looks very nice, but we don't really have much more to say about it because we didn't even realize they had a co-op game. Well, another one we can cover at PAX U. There you go. See, yeah. you got more to look forward to from us. My understanding is it completely sold out on Friday. So maybe we would have seen it if, if it had been there Saturday, but alas, it was sold out. All right. Well, good to know. We'll have to check that one out as well. All right. Let's stop talking about games we didn't play and start talking about games we did play. So we got back and we played Furnace first, right? Not first. First, Don had mentioned when we were chatting with him on Thursday evening, Don had mentioned that he wanted to get a large game of Struggle of Empires going, which is this large sprawling. It's a game based on colonialism, essentially, by Martin Wallace. So he texted me that they were about to get started with that. And that's when we left the dealer hall and wandered over to their hotel. Well, you wandered over there. I actually had a work teleconference to go handle. So I was gone for an hour. (laughs) Yeah, you you had a teleconference to go to. And then I went over to to play Struggle of Empires, which I won't get too much into it because it's certainly not a cooperative game. Well, go ahead and tell us a little bit about it, though, and your thoughts on it. Yeah. uh, So each player takes one of the major European powers and through a variety of actions will attempt to colonize various parts of the world. It was very abstracted. You'd just have land units and you'd have ocean-going units. And whenever you were trying to transport things to these far-off colonies, you ran the risk of whatever you were sending getting lost at sea or you know running out of supplies and having to return or that sort of thing. So, But it was, uh, it was very interesting. We played it with six players, and then there was a dummy seventh player. That was Don. <laughs> no, no, it was definitely not Don. Might have been me at some points, but uh, it was very interesting because it, it has a mechanic where at the start of each turn, you're bidding for turn order. But the way it works is one person decides who's going to be on team one and who's going to be on team two or the picks one player to be on team one and one player to be on team two. And then you have an auction round for just that configuration of those two players. And then you do that. In our case, we had six players. You do that three times. But in that way, you can't attack anybody who's on your team for that entire turn. So by picking who's on your team and who's not is really a big element of the game because you might want to protect yourself from somebody else by putting them on your team. 
Or, you know, if you really want to take over a particular area, you might want to make sure that whoever has that area now is not on that team so that you have that opportunity. But uh, it's kind of a long game. I think it ran two and a half, three hours. But it was a lot of fun. I certainly didn't come close to winning. But there was some romping in there. So it it was a lot of fun. Nice. Well, I didn't see anything about that except when I walked by after my teleconference. I was like, wow, I'm glad I did my teleconference instead of playing. Because it did (laughs) not look like my kind of game at all. Yeah, it is not Peter's kind of game. Lots of negotiation, lots of long-term, like, battle type stuff. Hey, I don't mind a battle game like that, but I don't want it to be as long as that one was. And I think it was longer than you thought, because while you were playing that, and after my teleconference, which they say was an hour, but that was the conference itself, I had to walk to and from our room, and then the conference went a little bit longer, and, and then I might have even gone to the dealer hall for a little bit. Then I came back, and we started Orleans Invasion while you were still playing that game, and we finished about the same time. So I think your estimation of time might be a little off on that. I think it's probably closer to four or five hours for that one because Orleans is not a short game either. I didn't count the setup and the uh, the rules teaching as part of that. Yeah, well, so we had rules teach for Orleans Invasion. And if you don't know Orleans, it's a bag building game where you're putting chits in a bag and you're pulling them out and you're building certain stuff. And it's very much a Euro bag building type game. I mean, you know, there's theme between stuff. You kind of got a board where you're running around and picking up goods while you're doing that, but then you're selling them off and trading them for other stuff. And it's basically a get a lot of victory points, get a lot of victory points, whoever gets the most victory points invasion came in and that introduced a co-op element to the game. And so that's what we ended up playing. And this was my second time playing it. I think you, me and Mike played it at one point and then I played it here and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I'd forgotten how much I liked it. I like Orleans. Okay. As a game, but the invasion expansion, the co-op thing did some things to fix what I thought were issues in the base game and make the game better. And of course, working cooperatively, even if there's buildings that are better or whatever else, I've always said I have a lot more forgiveness for balance issues in cooperative games. And I thought there was definitely some balance issues with some of the buildings in the base game. But Invasion, because it became cooperative now, I don't care as much about those. And like, yeah, we'll get the more unbalanced buildings. Now, the one thing that I thought was hilarious about this whole Orleans situation was everybody's like, oh, man, that is like the hardest cooperative game I've ever played. It is so hard. Nobody ever wins that. We haven't even gotten close before. And I don't remember when you, me and Mike played if we won or not. We did. Yeah. So we're playing the game and like we get to the end and we won and not substantially. I mean, we won on the last turn. It was a close game and all that. But everybody's like, oh, how bad did you lose? I'm like, actually, we won. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess if you play enough co-op games, then maybe it isn't as hard as people think. And maybe that's why we didn't go back to it also, because I'm not sure how much difficulty scaling they have in the game. That might be the only negative for the invasion expansion. I certainly have fun with it, but it's not the kind of thing where I would want to play it over and over. And again, because like when you're buying buildings, you can always buy from all the buildings. So there wouldn't be variety there. So I don't know where exactly the variety is. I guess where the goods go on the board, but even that's not as big a deal. Maybe they have different end goals based on the game. I think there was different end goals. I don't know. I didn't do all the setting up. So, you know, maybe there would have some variety there where you'd have to do different things each game. Oh, you had personal goals. That's what it was. So that made it kind of fun where everybody kind of had a different personal goal that they had to accomplish. I think that's where the variety would come in, but I played it twice. I beat it twice. I certainly wouldn't say no to playing it again. I've had fun both times playing it. And I like bag builders. I tend to enjoy those and there aren't nearly enough of them. 
So yeah, no, I had a lot of fun. I just don't know that I would need to own that one, especially because I think the invasion expansion's out of print. So hopefully it comes back in print so people can play it and tell me how hard it easy was it was when you played it. Yeah, I mean, I recall enjoying the game quite a bit. I think we benefited from the fact that we had played originally competitive before I had gotten a cooperative expansion. Sure. And I think we learned a lot about what not to do. Right. And I think if you're doing invasion for the first time and you make some of those mistakes that we made in our competitive play, you're not going to win. Right. But I think we got over some of those in the competitive mode. And then I think we were better prepared for the cooperative. But I enjoy both the base game and the I think it's the trade and intrigue expansion and the invasion expansion. They're all good. I own them all. Nice. This next game is a game we did not play, but one I saw. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was called So Clover. Did you see that one? No, I didn't. All right. So this is a cooperative game where everybody gets a clover-shaped board and you get four cards and you kind of slot them in the board. And on the outside of each of those cards has a word. So on every side has different words. So you have four words, but based on the configuration, again, you make this two by two grid and only the words on the outside count. So even if you use the same cards, if you just rotate them, you know, 90 degrees or 180 degrees, you can have totally different words in different spaces. And the way it works is if you look across the top of the cube, you're going to see two words and you have to write a word in that correlates those two words. So kind of like, you know, a lot of word games, just one, whatever else, you'd have to write in the word that would make you turn the card so it would put those two words together. And then you do that for every outside edge. So there's going to be two words on each outside edge. So you have these four cards, but not only do you have four cards, you actually get a fifth card shuffled in there as well. And now you got to figure out which four cards are the four and which way to turn them. So you have two pieces of information though, because each card is two of the sides are used. So you kind of have to figure out how to turn it to say, okay, well, this makes it go with this, but then this word on this side doesn't make any sense. Well, let's see. Maybe it's a different card. Maybe I got to rotate it. I don't know. I thought it was really clever, and it looked really fun. I did not get a chance to play it, but it's the kind of game that I would want to play with probably three, four players minimum. Seemed like it would be a lot of fun, though. Cool. So that was so clover, but then we played Furnace. Yep, and we played Furnace. So Furnace is a um, quick game of engine building and auction There's four rounds in the game. Each player is their own industrialist. They each have their own special power and uh, a unique starting card. And then there'll be a row of cards set out that everybody can bid on. But the bidding is a little little bit different than, you know, just bidding like coins for something. You have four chips, numbered one through four. For your turn on the auction, you put one chip of yours on one of the cards. And if you are trying to win the card, you're going to obviously put your four chip down. But if you don't want to win the card, you can put a lower chip than one that is already on there. So, for example, if Peter put his three on something, I could put my two. And then when the auction gets resolved at the end where you go through each card, the player with the highest chip gets the card. All the players who also have chips on that card but didn't win get some sort of bonus. And usually that's uh, uh, resources like you might get coal or iron multiplied by the number of your losing bid. So if he put a three and I put a two, he gets the card because he had a three but I get two times whatever the consolation prize was. You go through the auction. Each player puts down their four chips. You resolve all the auctions. Whatever cards you won will go to your tableau, and then you basically run those cards. There's actions on the bottom, and you choose the order in which you want to execute those actions on your cards, and use that to basically gather and convert resources eventually into money, which is the equivalent of victory points. 
Yeah, and a lot of times you're just gathering the resources and converting them into coins. It might be three coal to get four vic- four coins or whatever. I say victory right. points because it doesn't right. matter. That's basically what it is. Right. So it's a very simple, straightforward engine building game. It takes about 20 minutes to play. The only resource you have to upgrade, there's one of them. Or actually, I guess you can convert coal or iron into these barrels. And that's like a more valuable resource. And th- But again, you're just turning that into money. You have these cogs also, which kind of help you upgrade the cards that you get. But you could sell those for money if you have the right cards to do it. So it's really about gaining as many resources as you can and converting all those into money. It's a real quick game. Like Jerry said, four turns, very straightforward, had a lot of fun with it. We played it again last weekend with Mike and I think Mike even enjoyed it. So, I mean, it's Euro the Euro game for sure, but for its time that it takes to play, I don't know that I'd love it if it was a three hour game, but as a 20, 30 minute game, it worked great. Oh yeah. It it struck me as a very abbreviated game, similar to London by Martin Wallace. If, if anybody has played that, where you are accumulating cards to create an engine and then running that engine. What's the game with the Gollum edition? Century Spice Road. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that too, right? You're just getting resources, converting resources, turning many into victory points. It's very much like that, except I think this was even better because it was shorter and it just sang to me a little bit better. The auction was way more interesting than what I was doing in Century Spice Road, at least to me. Yeah, I had never played that one. But that was uh, Furnace by Arcane Wonders. And then we played a partial game, one of my favorite games, which is First Class. Love that game. Again, not a cooperative game. We played a couple of rounds, but then had to end early to play a new game. But I'll tell you a little bit about First Class. So it's a train game in the loosest sense of the word. Uh, Another Euro game where you have one thing where you're trying to extend the length of your train. You have another thing where you can move your train around. Then you're trying to move your conductors up and down the train to like collect the rewards. You're really just trying to score victory points. And then you have these goal cards that you could work on. And when you do those, that'll help you upgrade your train cars and things like that. It sounds like there's a lot of train going on, but really those cards could be anything. But at the same time, it's a lot of fun. It's one of those games that you are drafting from the middle of the table. I think the draft is really clever because I think you put five cards out regardless of the number of players. But once there is a number of cards equal to the number of players gone from any row. So there's three rows. So you're going to get three cards per round, but you just take one card and execute it, do whatever is on it. And that'll either, again, build your train out, upgrade your cars or build your railroad track out that you can move your train down to get other bonuses. It's really a clever engine building game that I love doing. Yeah, it's a fun game. Uh, The theme is kind of there, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the game itself is is quite fun. And we ended it early due to the slaughter rule, I think. (laughs) Yes, clearly that's what it was. It had nothing to do with the fact that Don got back. And the hot game everybody's been talking about from the Fantasy Flight Report, which we covered, was Unfathomable, which is the new BSG redone in the Cthulhu universe. And they had two games. They were setting them up. Don was about to teach everybody. And he's like, you guys got to get over here. We're ready to play. So we cleaned yeah. it up before we were done. But Jerry was killing me at that point in the game. But, you know, I I, I was planning for the long term. Oh, oh OK. Yeah. Just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so we went over and played Unfathomable. What did you think of that one? They actually had two games of Unfathomable running. Yep. I think both with six players, I think. Five or six. In each. Well, one six had ours. five. The other. Yeah. The other table had five. We had six. Like Peter said, it's it's sort of the, the reskin of Battlestar Galactica, which is a game that I played multiple times many, many years ago, 
and I liked, except when they added the first expansion. I can't remember if it was the Exodus expansion or something that just made it way too long and overwrought, and I hadn't played it since. But uh, the new version, Unfathomable, swaps the Cylons out for Deep Ones. So there's a, it's a trader mechanic, a hidden trader. When you deal out the cards that determine whether you're a trader or not, you do that twice during the game. So initially when you're playing, you might have two traders or one trader, or you may have no traders in the first half of the game, which everybody's trying to accuse everybody else of being a trader. There may not be any traders in the first half of the game. And then the rest of the cards left in that deck come out in the second half of the game. So in our game of six players, there's two traders. If you had no traders in the first half of the game, two people just got switched to being a trader in the second half of the game. So it's got some interesting things going on there. But overall, it didn't really hit for me. A couple of the mechanics have you, like if you get attacked or hurt, or if you're in an area that gets damaged, you get sent to the sick bay, which means you only get to draw one card on your turn, which you do things on your turn, but during the rest of the every other player's turn, you may be playing cards as well to add to the success or potentially failure if you're a trader of whatever the particular card they're executing is. And if you only draw one card on your turn, you can run out of cards quite quickly. And then you're just really kind of sitting around waiting. And then you can also be put in the brig, in which case you're also really just sitting around waiting. So uh, there seemed to be a lot of downtime where, you know, you could participate in accusing people and things like that. And there's that social element of the game, but you're not actually doing anything as far as gameplay is concerned. Well, and that's what happened to me. First player actually, I think, has a huge, I mean, I want to say disadvantage, but it's a co-op game for the most part. I mean, Hidden Trader. But I was first player. So I started with no cards in my hand. Everybody else had five, which makes sense. So they could do stuff on my turn. But then I draw five cards, but everybody else draws five cards on their turn. And it's very specific to your character, which cards you draw. I'm not going to get into details. But bottom line is, after my first turn, well, first of all, I had only seen five cards. Right. So I don't know what the values of these cards are. So the first thing I do is I go and I try to move the ship forward. Right. Because that's the goal of the game. Because I had strength cards. I was one of the few people that did. And that's what you needed to move the ship forward. As soon as I go there, they accuse me of being a trader because I played low value cards. Well, I don't know what the values of the cards are. It's my first time playing. Right. So I played a two value card. I didn't know if it went one to three, one to 10, one to 100. I don't know. So I played this two value card. They're like, wow, you're a trader. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to play my one value card to try to do that action again. I'm just trying to move us forward and win the game, right? So, I mean, that's the other thing. I think there's a little bit of a learning curve that that comes into play. But yeah, after that, the section of the boat I was in got destroyed. So my next turn, I used basically all my cards. So I drew one card. And then by the time it got around to me again, I was in another destroyed section. So I only got one card again. Now, one thing I learned is there are cards that let other players act on your turn. It's like give somebody else an action. And a lot of times those cards aren't as useful or as fun in other games. But certainly if you can give somebody an action to let them move out of sick bay, that is a huge boon. So there are ways to mitigate that. But we didn't know them early in the game. So for the first three rounds, basically, I wasn't doing a whole lot. So it it did seem like a lot of downtime for me. I don't know that they fixed a lot of problems that BSG had, but a lot of people love BSG. And I don't know that it went the other way either and got worse. There were balancing factors both ways. It was a little better in some ways, a little worse in other ways. But all in all, to me, it felt very similar to BSG. So if you like that game, I think you'll like this one. If you didn't like it, I I don't know that this is going to do anything to change your opinion on that. Yeah, if you didn't like Battlestar Galactica, you're not going to like Unfathomable. It's it's essentially the same game. I mean, there are differences. The emphasis on them is, is wildly different. Like, there's not as much emphasis, I, I don't feel, 
on the enemies coming in. Like when you're playing Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons were, were a real threat. You had to have somebody who was a pilot go out there in their, in their Viper and, and shoot them down. The enemies in this are the Deep Ones and then Father Dagon and Mother Hydra. And to be honest, in our game, at least, they didn't seem to do a whole lot. So, Well, we did a lot to counter them also, though. I mean, we did some things like we performed this ritual a couple of times to like blow them out. with. Let's put it this way. We were worried about them a lot. I don't know that we needed to be, but we spent a lot of time and effort doing stuff. And then we realized like one of the characters had a card that's like attack four times. And there's only four bad guys on the board. We're like, oh. Okay, so we do yeah. all this effort to like, you know, blow up our own ship, hurt our own people, and then we really didn't have to put that amount of effort in. Now, I think sometimes we might have, and you know, with six players, he's only one of the six players and only one of those cards in the game, right? And it just happened to go to the person that was really strong at fighting. So I do think it matters who gets those cards. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they don't mean a lot, but they certainly didn't in our game. But I don't remember in Battlestar Galactica. I know what you're saying. We had to go out and do whatever. But I thought every time you jumped in Battlestar Galactica, those things went away. They do. Yes. Yeah. And here they didn't, right? Didn't they go to a, a waiting area where they came back out again or something? So I don't know. I, I think they were more impactful than we realized. But I, I think it changes the emphasis. I think there are definitely things that are better. And I think there are definitely things that are worse. But overall, it's about the same quality to me. You know, those things seem to balance themselves out in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I had fun playing. And if somebody asked me if that, if I wanted to play again, sure, I'd play with them if that's what they were they were playing. But I don't think I'd ever actively seek this out. No, me neither. It's just not my kind of game. Well, first of all, it's not cooperative, obviously. But even beyond that, I'm not a huge fan of Hidden Trader games. Even things like Among Us, the video game, when that was out, like, I'm just not a huge fan of, like, just accusing people randomly of, of being a traitor. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, the one I like the most is resistance, but outside of that one, I haven't had a huge fondness for any of the other ones. Yeah. It turned out though, I, I ended up becoming a traitor in the second half of the game and yeah, the traders won. So. Well, yes. Cause I thought we had won, and then I realized we had to do a whole nother jump and we didn't have any more fuel. So I was like, Oh, the game's not over. Don's like, no, we gotta do one more. I'm like, well, that would have been good to know yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the the funniest part, though, is uh, one of the players, Brian, didn't read a card correctly. And this is near the end of the game. And he was a traitor, but nobody really had confirmed that yet. And he pulled out a card and, it, and it, it was a card that had a decision. You could choose to do you know one thing or the other thing. And you could choose to do one thing, which was a test that you could pass or fail. Or you choose to do another thing, which was you know something else completely. So he throws the card down on the table and says, I choose fail. Like he could just choose to fail the test rather yes. than make a <laughs> make a choice. He's like, I can choose what we do. We're like, yeah, you could choose either one, you know, either option, the top or the bottom. He goes, I choose fail. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Wait, what? I was like, no, 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 you still have to do the test. You can't choose fail. Yeah. He's, so we had we, we ended up doing the test anyway, but I, I think he was pretty much revealed as a traitor at that point. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, we, we, I mean, he he had this. This grin on his face. You know what kind of grin I'm talking about. And yep. He just, he was so happy. And he threw the card out. He goes, I choose fail. <laughs> We're like, what are you talking <laughs> Anyway, that was great. Great fun. Yes. Yeah, that was definitely the highlight of of that game and and maybe even the con. Like, I mean, I'm never going to forget that story. So. Oh, we, we, we were rolling on the floor laughing. It was hilarious. And so that was pretty much it for Friday night. Yep. You know, Unfathomable was a bit of a long game. I think it was like two and a half, three hours. The original Battlestar was pretty long too. But after that was over, I think everybody was like, all right, 
I think it's time to turn it in for the night. Yep. And I know we have one full day to go, and we're going to talk about it now. But don't worry, this one wasn't nearly as long a day. We only played a few games the next day, actually. And I don't know how that happened. But we started off by going to the dealer hall again, and we had a boardroom badge. And so we're looking through the game library, and I saw a game called Wrath of Dragons there. I had no idea what it was about, but I knew I was going to get it. So I took it out of the game library. Catalyst Games made it. It was a couple years old. And if you know anything about me, you know I love dragons. Turns out it's a dragon game, which can be played either cooperatively or competitively. Now, we played competitively. Two to six players? I was like, huh, I didn't even realize this game existed. And it's a game all about dragons. So I don't know how it got swept under the rug, but it was very interesting. I mean, you were definitely doing dragony things the whole time. It was it was a little bit abstract. There's like six sections on the board representing the six kingdoms, and you wanted to burn down the cottages in each of the six kingdoms, and plundering food, and taking gold, and capturing nobles, and all you know, all these type dragony stuff. They didn't really give you a reason. There was no story behind it, but. It was fun what you were doing. I enjoyed myself quite a bit. I think, Jerry, you pointed this out. It would have been better probably at higher player counts, but I didn't mind playing it at two players. It was relatively quick for what it was. The rules were not the best, but they were pretty straightforward once we got through them. I mean, because we sat there and had to learn them from the rule book, which, again, wasn't the best. But once we figured it out, it's like, oh, this is actually pretty straightforward. And this is one I probably want to get my hands on only because it's dragon theme. Look, if this was any other theme, I would not have liked it nearly as much. But I love the dragon theme, and it was pretty spot on for what I was looking for from a dragon game. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot better and easier to play than the rules led us to believe initially. We struggled with the rules quite a bit. Like, I had to get up and get a cup of coffee. It was... It's putting you it was, to sleep. It's difficult. Yeah, it was putting me to sleep, basically. So once we got the rules down and we started playing, and then, you know, a couple turns in when we figured out what we were doing, I think Peter figured out what he was doing quicker than I figured out what I was doing. Yeah, because he kind of crushed me in it. But it, it was a pretty entertaining little game. It's a shame that it kind of fell by the wayside. I think it came out in, what, 2015 or 2016 or something like that. Yeah, I don't know how this one got swept under the rug. Again, it wasn't the best game. It wouldn't have even been my best game of 2016, I'm sure. But it was a good game and it was a fun game. I mean, it was a solid seven, right? So I don't know. I enjoyed it. I think it probably suffered that it was published by Catalyst Games. Catalyst Games is really known for Battletech and the Shadowrun RPG. Their forays into board gaming haven't necessarily gone very well. I guess they did do Shadowrun Crossfire. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't great. And then they had another one, Shadowrun, coming out. It was on Kickstarter, and I don't remember hearing anything about after the Kickstarter. So I think it suffered a little bit from who was publishing it. But yeah, it was a, it was a fine game. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say go out and try to find it and buy it. But I would say if you ever run across it, I would definitely check it out. Or if you're at Origins next year, which I highly recommend you go to, I would definitely try it out. It's in their game library, so why not? All right, Jerry, just a couple more games. Yep, and as we were finishing up Wrath of Dragons... I got a text from Jamie in the Secret Cabal, and we had previously talked about setting up a game of Brass Birmingham, which, again, not co-op, but a really great game by Martin Wallace. It was a Martin Wallace weekend, I guess. Yeah. So he texted us right about when we were wrapping up Wrath of Dragons. So we went over to their hotel again and sat down and played a game of Brass Birmingham, which is a game I really enjoy. It's similar to the original Brass, but it, it has some different elements in it, mostly in that you need beer to ship things. Whereas regular brass, you ship it via ships. It's funny because I did not realize that beer basically replaced ships until after playing it this time. 
I'm like, wait, there's no ships, but there's beer here. I was like, oh, but beer kind of compensates for the fact that there's no ships. The only difference is you can build beer inland where the ports you'd always have to build on the outside. But I mean, even with the foreign markets you're selling to or whatever, there's beer at each one and you can only sell to each one once. Whereas the foreign markets in brass, you would just flip them over. You've already sold to that one, so you can't sell to it again. So there's a lot of similarities in this one to the original brass. I mean, almost identical. I I think it's a little bit easier to pick up because you don't have that one weird rule in the middle, which I can't even remember what it was, but like one city has certain connections and you can only go one way in or one way out or whatever. But yeah, if you like brass, you're going to like this one. Basically, it's a rail building slash canal building game where you're building rails and canals all over the board. And then you're building different plants to build and ship goods to different foreign nations to make money. And I love economic games, and that's exactly what this one is. It's a little convoluted, certainly. There's things where you've got to move iron, or I'm sorry, you have to move coal over your lines, but iron can come from anywhere. And again, there's a thematic explanation for it. But when you're playing the game, you know, it's like orange cubes and black cubes, and you're like, wait a minute. One of these I got to move across and the other one just magically teleports. Okay. (laughs) So like, I mean, there's stuff like that you have to remember, but I do think it is a great game. Just a little bit of a learning curve. But uh, if you like economic games, if you like Euro games where you're trying to build an infrastructure, build stuff up, really trying to make money and that way support your infrastructure more in the future, deciding whether you want to go for victory points or money and make those tough decisions throughout the game. I think Brass is a great game for that. Yeah, and I, I think Birmingham's actually better than the original. I do too. Yeah, and it, it runs on that familiar Martin Wallace mechanic where you'll have a hand of cards, you get to take two actions on your turn, and you have to play a card for each action. And sometimes the action is enabled by the card, and sometimes the action is just you're doing something and you just have to put down a card anyway. So if you've played one of Martin Wallace's games that have that two-action play-a-card mechanic, it's very similar to how it works in brass. Yeah, and uh, there was a new player, and so as convoluted as the game can be, the new player picked it up about a quarter of the way through and really was sailing along, you know, didn't slow anything down. The only time the game ever bogged down was the end, and it was totally my fault. And it's very much this kind of AP-inducing Euro game at, at times. With two rounds to go, I had exactly what I wanted to do. Somebody took the action I was going to do right before my turn, and I tried to figure out what I could do because basically I was trying to figure out if I could score my buildings at the end of the game, right? Because I'd done all this work to build all these buildings and done all this stuff. And so I'm trying to figure it out. And of course, I'm a dollar short of doing this. Then I think of something else. I'm like, okay, let me try this. And I'm a dollar short of doing that. So there is, there can be turns like that where it's like everybody's kind of sitting around waiting for you. I do think it's straightforward enough for, I would definitely give it a try. And those situations only kind of happen near the end of the game when you're like, okay, I've done all this work. Now I got to figure out how to make it work because what I was planning on isn't there anymore. (laughs) But yeah, no, that's a fun one. Yeah, and I definitely say if you like Martin Wallace games or you like really any heavy Euro, you really owe it to yourself to play Brass Birmingham. It's the number three game of all time on Board Game Geek. So behind Gloomhaven and Pandemic Legacy Season 1. So it's the top non-cooperative game of all time is what you're trying to say. Yes, sure. If you want to consider (laughs) Gloomhaven cooperative. Yeah, you can't trade money, but beside that, it's a cooperative dungeon crawl, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we played with uh, we played that with uh, Jamie from the Secret Cabal and AC from the Lords of the Dungeon role playing game podcast that Jamie also hosts. So yeah, that was fun. It was a role player game of that. 
Yep, and then we continued with more Euro the Euro games where we played another new game that you bought. I think these were probably two of the hottest games at the convention. One was Furnace, the other one was Korra. Yes, so Korra, the theme is each player is one of the Greek city-states in antiquity, and you will have basically seven cardboard tiles that represent the different actions that you can take, numbered from zero to seven. And then what you will do is on your turn, you roll two dice, and then whatever the individual dice show, those are the actions that you're eligible to take. So if you roll a five, you can take any of the actions between zero and five. So if you have a five and a three, one of the dice can be used for the four action, and one of the dice can be used for the two action, for example. And then you'll play them all face down, and then everybody flips it simultaneously, and you basically count up from zero. You say, all right, you know, whoever has a zero action, go ahead and do that. And then you count all the way up to six, which is the highest action. And for the most part, all of it is simultaneous play, except for one of the actions is the military action. You're not directly interacting with the other players in that way, but you are both competing for different spaces on the board. Yeah, you're fighting monsters, right? So you got to kill these different monsters, and they're each worth different amounts of points, and they each kill different amounts of your troops. You know, if they were monsters, I think it would be a little bit more exciting as far as the theme. No, I think it's just, you know, they're going to war with other city-states. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's supposed to no, be No, 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 because the bottom space was Hades himself, right? Didn't you like... No, that was Persepolis. I can't say it, but it was just a, it was a large city that everybody was trying to take over. It, it wasn't the underworld, no. <laughs> all right. Well, let me tell you something. If this all sounds very interesting to you, which it should, because it actually is a very fun game. But if you look at any pictures of this anywhere, you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, it's tracks the game. Like literally in the middle of the table, there is a giant board of tracks that you are trying to go up to, like increase your population and things like that. And population, all that does is help mitigate that dice luck. So if you roll a one and you really want to do action five, you can destroy four of your citizens to do that action five. No problem. So that's a little bit of a dice manipulation there. But also... Yeah, you're going up on all these military tracks and all this stuff. And then when you attack different cities, all you're doing is reducing your military track based on what it tells you to reduce it. There's a lot of tracks going on because there's tracks in the middle. And then you have tracks on your individual player board as well. And these are beautiful dual layer boards. And, you know, as boring as it sounded to me and as boring as it looked to me, when I actually started playing it, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of good stuff going on in this game. I don't know. Maybe I just love that two dice thing. Castles of Burgundy, another one of my favorite games. And again, it's two dice and you're just picking your actions and you have action manipulation and things like that. It didn't feel exactly like that to me, but I like those choices where you have just a limited amount of options and you're trying to pick the best thing you can do with those limited options you have. And part of it could just be building up your infrastructure so you can do better stuff on your next turn. Yeah. Like Peter said, you know, each player has seven tracks that they have to keep track of, pun not intended. The game is very well produced. It, it's very pretty, and it, the opponents are solid. The theme is a little dry, but you know each of the city-states have their own individual power that kind of sets you on your path on which way you can go to sort of maximize your points. And then the player interaction really comes from something called achievements, and it's really the first player who accomplishes a particular thing, like, for example, have 12 citizens, they would get the achievement, or they have you know six troops, or they're so far up on one of the tracks, or this, that, and the other thing. I think there's five achievements. So you're racing the other players to get to those achievements. And let me tell you something. I didn't even know those achievements existed until you guys got the first couple. I didn't even know what that was all about. (laughs) 
I didn't get any. The person who got three or four of them because nobody else was paying attention to them ended up winning pretty handily. I will say you should race for them. And there's enough that everybody can get one and maybe you're fighting over a second one. But if you let somebody get all those achievements, they're just going to run away with the game. At least that was our experience in the one play we had. But it should never happen, right? Because if they're focused on one thing, you should be able to do something else before they get to it. Yeah, I think our mistake, well, at least my mistake is I didn't realize that the achievements were so achievable that early. Yes. And by the time I realized that they were something I should have been looking at from the beginning of the game, the one person who taught us a game had already claimed two of them, right? Yes. And then you got one of them, right? Did he get the other four? No, it it ended up he, he had three and I had two. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I didn't even, you picked up on it quicker than I did. I I didn't even think about it. And then I went for one and he beat me to it because he was a turn ahead of me because I wasn't paying attention to it. I was paying attention to something else because as you defeat certain city states or whatever else, you get these flags. And I was totally focused on those flags and those flags help you play the cards in your hand. And so I was totally focused on that, playing the cards in my hand. But he beat me to playing cards in his hand faster, even though that isn't even what he was focused on. So I don't know. Lesson learned. If you play the game, definitely pay attention. Pick one of those achievements. Look what everybody else is going for. Go for something different. Make sure you get at least one of those for sure. And I I think it'd be a fairly balanced game that way. But we were just taught by somebody who just like went for the jugular on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I was close at the end. I think I lost by like four points out of 70 some or something like that. But well, sure, but you got two of the three achie- or two of the five achievements. Like the two of us that got zero achievements weren't even within the same stratosphere as you guys. That's true. No, it, uh, it's a really enjoyable game, though. You know, your first game is probably going to be a learning game as you figure out how to develop your engine. Like Peter didn't pay any attention to money, and that really crippled him later on. I think. Yep. The game itself is very solid. It's very fun. The components are nice. The game is well laid out. The art is pretty. So yeah, I, I really like this one. I'm glad I got it. And that is Cora by Aiello. And that's spelled K-H-O-R-A. Yes. But the last game we played at the convention was Atlantis Rising. Well, that's not true. I played one the next day. We'll get to that one. I said we'd get back to it. We do have one to play the next day. But uh, the last game we played that night was Atlantis Rising. We played a seven-player game of Atlantis Rising. Well, six. One of the guys left before the rules explanation was over because he was falling asleep at the table. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) And I I did not end up playing it, but I ended up teaching and looking up rules as we were going along because I hadn't played it in years. But they're like, oh, you've played this before? Why don't you teach us how to play? I'm like, because I don't know how to play. (laughs) So, I mean, it wasn't that hard of a game to pick up. But yeah, teaching a game that you don't know to a bunch of people that you don't also know is uh, can be a little stressful. Yeah, that have never played the game before and everybody was tired. After a full day of gaming and, and learning other rule sets, yeah, because we had just learned Korra. We had just, I mean, Brass, I knew how to play, but it had been years since I had played it. Uh, the Dragon game, we hadn't played before. So, yeah, it, it was a lot, a lot of new stuff that day. But we ended up playing Atlantis Rising and ended up barely pulling it out at the end. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think we won on, it was pretty close to what would have been the last turn of the game because we were losing Atlantis pretty quickly at that point. Yeah, and the game accelerates really well. And I was surprised how well it scaled to six players. Like, I was worried as it was about six players. That's why I didn't jump in as a seventh player when the other guy left. It worked out really well, though. And it's one of those games that I was shocked it scaled as well as it did. I think it was fine at six players. Did you feel cheated in any way out of actions or whatever else? No, no. I think I actually thought it scaled very well. It didn't seem like it would have made a difference whether it was four or six. 
as far as the game was concerned. I think it still has an alpha player problem pretty badly, actually. Everybody has to collaborate on where they're going, especially when you you know have your individual player powers. Making sure that you coordinate that is important so you can take the most advantage of them. But it's very easy for a strong-willed player to sort of dictate what the other players are going to do. Well, and especially with the way your player powers worked, like it was beneficial for you guys to all be at the same place at the same time because one of the characters gave everybody plus one to their die rolls. So it kind of made sense to, okay, where are we going this turn and kind of all run to that one spot. So everybody got the advantage and then you could really protect that one portion of the island. I don't know that it would always be that way, but it certainly was in your game for sure. Yeah, but it's still a fun game. Yeah, no, I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed teaching it. I mean, I felt like I was part of the game. I, I was playing the island. You're playing the water. <laughs> the seas were angry that day, my friend. Indeed. It was it was fun. The game was a lot better than I remembered, and I should have known better because Mike really likes this one. And uh, we definitely have plays of it, I believe, both on the streamed and non-streamed channels. So if you want to see how that one plays more or learn more about it, we definitely have plays of it. But the best thing for me was it scaled. And I mean, I don't think a seventh player would have made any difference at all. So, I mean, anywhere from what, two to seven people, that's, that's hard to pull off. And they did a real good job of it. Yep. No, I agree. So that is Atlantis rising by Elf Creek games slash lucky duck games. Cool. And so that was it for us that night. We played a bunch of longer games. And again, even Atlantis rising went long because I had to relearn the rules before I taught everybody. And it was a higher player count game. And there was a lot of discussions. I mean, brass is a longer game. Yeah. It just ended up being a lot of longer games that day. So we didn't get as many games in, but it was still a lot of fun. We spent some time in the dealer hall as well. And then Sunday was the last day and we got up and we went and got a demo copy of the loop. So I should either by this point or Early next week, I'm sure Mike's going to put up my five and five review, my first ever on the non-stream channel of The Loop. And let's talk a little bit about it because we did end up playing that this past weekend. And what did you think of it? It's fun. The components are very nice. It has a nice table presence. It's definitely like a, a puzzle you need to solve. You know, you have actions on your turn based on the cards that you draw from your deck. So it's got a little bit of a deck building element to it. Yep, there's five different characters, and each character has a six-card deck, and it's completely unique to that character, and they each also have a special power. And on your turn, you're going to have three of those cards to play with, and you just exhaust them when you're done using them. And then you also have like green cubes on the board, which will also help you with your puzzle. So you can use those to either move around the board or do something called a loop, which is unexhaust all cards of one type. So in the upper left-hand corner of each card, there's a different type. There's three different types in the game. So if you're lucky or and or if you build your deck the right way, you might have two or even three of those same cards on a turn. So when you do a loop, which again, discard a green cube from the board, untap all those cards of the same type, you can really get some really powerful stuff going on as the game goes on and on. And uh, I, I really like that one too. It's a lot of fun. I actually think I liked it more than you and Mike. The card puzzliness of it is really unique and interesting. I also played it quite a few times solo, and it has a really good solo mode as well, where you're just shuffling the decks of all the characters that you're playing together. You could play anywhere from two to four of them, and it's not that hard to do. And you basically just flip the cards up until you have three of one player's cards, or you're going to collect other cards. As Jerry said, there's a deck building element to it as well. And those neutral cards you could put on any character. 
And so once one character gets three cards on them, you activate that character and you just do those three actions. Unlike other games like this, where you kind of have to pay attention to different hands and stuff like that, you really don't in this. It's like whoever you draw three cards for, that's the person you're activating. You don't have to know anybody else's special ability. You don't have to know anything else they can do. Now, there are some times where it says like, choose another player to do an action or something. Then you have to look through the cards of the other player at that point. But I thought it was really fun. I think it's a really cool puzzle game. And for something as light as it is, where I think you can play it with kids. I know my daughter played it 10, no problem. I'm sure you could play it with kids even younger than that. Not a lot of reading, not a lot of special text. It's not overly complicated. You know, talk about a romp game. I think this is the uh, the rompiest of romp games. And uh, this is probably where I got made fun. Oh, no, no. I got made fun of for Dark Tower for romp. Yes. But no, I had a lot of fun with this one. And uh, yeah, look for my five and five review. And then Colin did a playthrough on the non-streaming channel as well. Yeah, I didn't quite like it as much as Peter did, but I did like it. It's a good game. The only real knock I had on it is it seemed like on, when the actual actions that you're taking on your turn, there is a best way to do it, right? For every single turn, there's going to be an optimal use of your various actions that you have available to you. And it's just how close you get to figuring out that optimal series of actions before you get bored of thinking about it, basically, right? (laughs) Sure. Now, there is some strategy involved, how you're building your deck and things like that. But your actual turn itself, is it seems like there is a best answer based on what you have. And can you figure out what that best thing is during your turn? But overall, I mean, it's a fun game. I like it. I mean, I, I agree with you that there's probably a better answer and worse answers. But then because of the luck of how the tower turns or whatever else, it might not turn out to be the best move for you, right? So there is definitely a lot of randomness in where those cubes come out and where you get these clones that come out on the board. And if you just happen to get clones in the same place the tower turns, you could end up losing a place randomly. But with all that said, it's a quick enough game and the puzzly elements are super fun. So I think there's enough randomness to not make it an absolute like obvious puzzle. But at the same time, I think there's enough puzzliness and control that you have that people who like that kind of thing will ultimately enjoy it. Yep, I don't disagree. So the one game I forgot to cover on Sunday while I was waiting for them to get me to figure out where the copy of the loop was to give it to me. I went over back to Restoration Games and I played Thunder Road. And as Jerry said, I was like a kid in a candy shop. That game was so fun. You basically just roll four dice and you're going to assign three to your cars, and that's how many spaces you move. If you end up behind somebody, you roll an attack dice to see if you hit them. And if you land on them, then you roll these two dice, one that tells you whether it's the top or the bottom car that something happens to, and the other one tells you which direction you go. And if you get thrown off the board or into a cliff or whatever else, your car just explodes. If not, you know you just go on and uh, move somebody to somewhere else. So, I mean, a lot of randomness, a lot of dice rolliness, a lot of just stupid silly fun it is player elimination because you know somebody's team has to die for somebody to win i think the way it works is when one team is eliminated the next person to race off the edge of the map wins so if you are eliminated it's not going to be very long before your next turn but i told you you had three cards and four dice the way it works is you use that fourth dice to do an action you could use it to heal your car you could use it to bring the helicopter in to shoot other people's cars You can turbo if the dice roll is low enough, which just adds that dice to the dice you rolled for that car. So you're really just deciding which dice you're assigning to which car. And you don't do it all at once. You basically choose one dice at a time to activate. 
And so, I don't know. It was a lot of stupid fun. You know, there's stuff on the board, hazards on the board. You flip them over to see what those hazards are. Maybe it's a random piece of road in the middle of the desert that lets you go extra spaces. Maybe it's an oil slick that spins you off in someplace random or crazy. If that sounds fun to you, I think you're going to enjoy it. Oh, they're going to have a motorcycle expansion. I'm so excited by that. Uh, I think the original game, it had a buggy. I, I don't think it had a motorcycle, but they, they're talking about motorcycle expansions. Well, I think it's going to be a whole team of motorcycles. There's like five of them. But again, they're going to be weaker and easier to destroy. For me, it was super fun. The only thing I worry about, because I've seen what Restoration Games does, and I've seen their production that they were looking for. The helicopter looks awesome. Everything looks awesome. The only thing that worries me, it's going to be like a $200 game. And I don't know that it's a $200 game. You know what I mean? Like, I wish it was going to be a $30 or $40 game, because that's what it should be. Well, I think a lot of Restoration Games are pretty cheap. Fireball Island wasn't, you know, ex- excessively expensive for, you know, what it was. And, you know, Dark Tower had an awful lot of stuff in it, you know, as far as designing the tower and producing that with all the electronics, and Bluetooth, the app and all that other stuff. I'd, I'd expect it to be somewhere between 50 and 100. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fun romp. It's not going to be the strategic masterpiece that, uh, <laughs> but... I, and I, I think it'll be better at higher player counts as well, because I only played a two player and we just played a partial game. But what I did play, I had a heck of a good time with. If that sounds at all fun to you, I think you'll enjoy it. And if it doesn't, you probably won't, because, I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, you looked at it. What did you think? I'd be interested in playing it. It looked fun. I don't have the fond memories of Thunder Road because I'd never played it, but I do enjoy those kind of Mad Max, Car Wars kind of things. So I'd, I'd give it a try. Yeah, it's not as heavy as Car Wars, Gaslands, any of those other games. It is definitely not that. You know, you're literally rolling a dice and moving that many spaces forward. It is what you think it'll be. But Jerry, we've gone long. That's okay, because I think this was a, a good discussion, and I had a great time at Origins. I'll be honest, Origins is my favorite non-local convention. I guess if you consider unpub a convention, that might be up there as well, but Origins is not a convention that I've ever really done a lot at the boardroom. It's not really ever a convention. I've done a lot of ticketed events. It's a big convention in the fact that you go and there's a dealer hall and you get to see all the cool new stuff. But then you kind of go back to your room or to your hotel or big bar on two and you play games there. I mean, we were in the dealer hall. Gosh, the amount of time we spent in the convention part of it was certainly less than a quarter of the time we were there. Oh, definitely. Most of our time was spent off either eating with people or doing whatever. It's just a great relaxing con for stuff like that. Now, with that being said, it was COVID year. So things were definitely different than they've been in the past. You don't have as many luxuries as you had. There weren't as many evening events, things like that, as there had been in the past. I still had a blast with it. But if you're going for a dealer hall and like demos and stuff, I mean, they have all that. We Just because we didn't do it doesn't mean they didn't have it. Certainly, you could have bought tickets and demoed a lot more games than we did. But we kind of found our own niche, our own place to go, and ended up playing games there the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I I had a really good time. But mainly it was because I was playing games with friends new and old. The actual convention itself, I mean, I, I hesitate to judge Origins based on COVID year. But beyond local conventions where we'll go and we'll play longer games with our group, the larger conventions like PAX Unplugged or Gen Con, I enjoy the hype. I enjoy the large dealer room. I enjoy at both Gen Con and PAX Unplugged, you know, doing the ticketed events, doing the RPGs, things like that. I didn't do any of that at Origins. And there didn't seem to be a, a tremendous amount of that going on. I mean, there were, there were some, but not not a whole lot. So for a convention, I didn't spend very much time doing convention stuff 
or convention sponsored stuff while I was there. And, you know, that's okay. But part of me thinks, you know, I didn't really have to go all the way to Columbus for that. Well, sure you did. We have small kids. We, we, yeah, we right. don't ever get time. No, to I, had to go, this- I had to go somewhere, but I didn't necessarily have to go to Origins for that. Sure. But again, I'm hesitate to rate Origins based on the pandemic year, because it was obviously quite a bit smaller than it typically is. It was only two of the exhibit halls instead of all four. The rooms were very subdued. The dealer room was like half the size is my understanding of what it normally is. It's normally the size of packs, but without the lines. I mean, you saw what the dealer hall would be, except again, half the size of what it normally would be. But you saw what you get to do there, right? I mean, that the stuff that was there is what's going to be there. Well, I didn't participate in any of the ticket events, right? So sure. I didn't see I didn't see all of it. I've gone five times and I've never done a ticketed event. Well, that's but that's not your thing, right? Correct. That's more my thing. That's something I enjoy at conventions. You know, and additionally, even with all the shipping woes with COVID, I think there was a lot fewer new games that normally would have been out at a convention. Now, Origins is never a big release convention, like new releases. That tends to be more like Gen Con or Essen. But there didn't seem to be a whole lot of brand new stuff going. And a matter of fact, two of the major things that were being advertised there which was the new Too Many Bones expansion, which is supposed to come to Kickstarter mid to late October. Oh, yeah, we totally forgot to talk about that one. And, uh, well, that's because they didn't have it. I mean, they had literally nothing there at the convention except huge wall posters advertising the upcoming Kickstarter. But they didn't have, like, a prototype copy. They didn't have anything at their booth. And Roleplayer Adventures also had a decent advertising presence. But, again, they didn't have anything there, I think, that was playable. No, they did. They just didn't have it on the table, which was funny because they only had one table in their booth. And right, well, they t- they said to come back and play it in the afternoon. They were running demos in the afternoon. But then uh, I realized well, we'd already played it and I didn't need to come back for the demo. Well, to some degree, if you if you have something and you don't have it on your table at a dealer booth, then you don't really have it, right? Sure. <laughs> well, they, they, they had stuff that they could sell there, right? Of course. Right, right. Which made right. sense. Yeah, so, I mean, it was kind of subdued as far as the dealer room's concerned. It was smaller. There was less games out and available. And I didn't get to do any of the events because they were sold out by the time I checked. But even if I had, it didn't look like... Like, I stopped by some of the RPG rooms, and it it was pretty sparsely populated in there. So it looked like it was just a lot smaller than normal. We did run into somebody who said, look, if you want to go to an RPG, even if the event's sold out, buy generic tickets, show up, and they'll have space for you. Oh, yeah. They say that at every con. They say that at Gen Con, too. And sometimes you show up and they have a spot and sometimes you show up and they don't. But you have to buy the tickets ahead of time. So paying money for the chance of doing something is eh. Sure. But as you saw, the rooms were sparsely populated. So you almost definitely could have gotten into something if you really wanted to. Well, no, they had they had people there playing individual games. They just didn't have as many games running, if that makes sense. Now, there were some things that we could have sat down and played, like they had Battletech going, things like that, that we could have gotten in if we wanted to. But overall, it was much more subdued than something like Gen Con or a PAX. I mean, for better and for worse, right? For me, I like that better. I like the social aspect of it. I like going around. And I mean, I didn't know anybody my first couple years there. And I still went around and met people and enjoyed my time there. I mean, that's the stuff that I enjoy doing, though. I enjoy talking to the publishers, right? Justin Gary, we not only talked to him in the evenings, but we talked to him a ton at his booth as well. And those people we had met and played with the night before, we got to talk to at the booth because they have time. Did you just call him Justin Gary? Is that not his name? Justin Jacobson? Who's Justin Gary? The guy who did Ascension. Yes, I'm sorry. 
But we got to hang out with the restoration crew and got to know them a lot better than we would have otherwise, right? They, I promise you at Gen Con, they're not out playing Unfathomable all night. Yeah, true. That's a good point. So that is the pro of this convention is if you want to meet people in the industry, if you want to talk to people, Gen Con's not the con to go to, not even PAX. Even though PAX is about the same size, PAX is still more about selling and booth presence and stuff like this. This is not a big selling con for them. This is more of a networking con for them as well as us, the attendees. So if that's what you're interested in, that's why I like Origin so much. For me, it is the top of these big cons because of that. Because it's got this more small town feel to it also. And you just go get food and, you know, they got North Market and they got all these restaurants that are close by. And that Mexican place I love, I'm going to go every year. And if we could have gone twice, I would have gone a second time. So uh, I I don't know. I I enjoy everything about Origins. For a big con, it's definitely my favorite. Yeah. Well, I look forward to trying it again, hopefully when things are more back to normal. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. I know this is a little bit longer episode, but you got to hear about a lot of games. We never do this. We never talk about more than one game in an episode. So I think for your uh, your time investment, you got a lot out of it, hopefully as well. And they weren't even all co-ops. And one last shout out. We did get to meet one of our uh, Discord members there. We got to meet Chuck and his wife, Ruth. I wish we had a chance to play games with them, which we didn't get to do because we were actually in the middle of playing Korra when they came by. So, And they had a group of friends that were there as well. But thanks to them for stopping by. And yeah, if you're going to be at PAX Unplugged this year... Definitely give us a shout out on the Discord. We will definitely meet you out somewhere. I know in the past we had done things. I think it was a Gen Con. We did an escape room with a lot of people from the Discord. We definitely would like to do more of that kind of stuff. The problem, of course, is COVID and all that. But as things get more back to normal, we'll definitely start doing that. But if you're going to be at PAX, definitely give us a shout out. And we'd love to meet you out. Maybe not get a chance to play a game, but certainly if we have time and can, we'd love to. Look us up. Yep. I like meeting people too. Cool. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again, and we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. You could say anything, literally anything. and it would be <laughs> Anything. That you've provided me. At this <laughs> I thought you were going to keep going. I mean, I will now, I guess. <laughs> yes, keep going. This week, we are going to support Matthias Painshater. That's probably not correct. <laughs> In fact, I know that's not correct. So let me try again. (laughs) Please join our Discord. Discard? (laughs) Discard. Discard that. So please join our Discord. Gosh, really? (laughs) All right. Well, good to know. But something definitely to look forward to at PAX United as well. And United. Wow. United. Is that like where they only play Marvel United? Because I'm not going to that con. (laughs) That's absolutely correct. It's United Con. (laughs) Steve can go that one. And one last... Of course, I hit my thing right as I start talking. (laughs) Hey, Peter. Yes. I choose fail.
I choose fail. fail. <laughs> oh, God. So anyway. 